Welcome to Trial and Medical Error, where we bridge the gap between medicine and law and unlock groundbreaking trial techniques. Join hosts Brendan Lupitan and Greg Uniton as they share novel insights and strategies to help you confidently tackle the most complicated cases. Produced and powered by LawPods. On this episode, I talk with John Noble, who is a prolific and incredibly sought-out mediator in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. I have uh, mediated uh, countless cases with John uh, successfully over the years. And in addition to being a terrific mediator, I love talking with him because he has so many wonderful insights about the trial practice. He was a longtime trial attorney and has worked on both sides of the fence and has a really unique perspective that I think every lawyer, uh, both on the plaintiff and defense side, uh, can get a lot of value from about how to better approach and prepare for uh, their mediations in the future to get the best outcomes for their clients. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Good to have you here, Mr. John Noble, mediator extraordinaire across the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania and in other states too, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm regional at this point. How about that? That I thought I see on the list serves that attorneys from New Jersey are asking about you and stuff. And I think to myself, hey, I know that guy. But for the few people listening to the podcast that don't know who you are, can you tell us a little bit about your background before we start jumping into mediations and best and worst practices? Hey, when you're as old as I am, I'll try to keep it to, to a couple of hours. <laughs> Grew up in Du Bois, Pennsylvania, went to law school at uh, Duquesne. Went to night school, worked for a defense firm. Those were really the only jobs you could get. And I was at Meyer, Dara, Buckler, Bebenek, and Eck for almost 30 years. But opened the branch office out here in Westmoreland in 83, which was just a year out of uh, passing the bar. And ultimately, being from this community, started receiving requests to take on plaintiff cases, which was the law firm's dirty secret because we were a pure defense firm of 50 and then ultimately 85 lawyers. And that uh, was uh, something that I never foresaw as the uh, springboard to becoming an arbitrator and then a mediator because since I was a defense lawyer who also did plaintiff's work, which was verboten, when uh, law firms and lawyers and insurance carriers were looking for someone that they could justify to be the arbitrator. Hey, that guy out in Greensburg, he does both. He must be fair. So I started uh, receiving many requests to serve as the chairman of UM arbitration panels. And uh, I was no longer just a trial attorney. I became trial attorney slash arbitrator. And then when mediation started creeping into to Western Pennsylvania, I was the guy that was out there in Greensburg, which might as well have been Switzerland to everybody from the rest of the Commonwealth. I received my first call to, to uh, mediate a case, turned into two a month, word of mouth spread to six a month. Took a couple of years to fill the pipeline, but within about three and a half years, I was doing 20 a month, and it has never slowed down since about 2007. I've been doing at least 250 mediation and arbitrations a year. John, why a year? What's your total these days? I knew you were going to ask, so I just checked it out. 
I just did my 751st Zoom since the COVID era of March 23 of 20. And uh, I just did my 267th case of this year. Since I knew you were going to ask, I have uh, 15 more <laughs> before the Christmas holiday. And we'll talk about this, the advent of uh, the Zoom technology, which allows me to uh, do two a day, if not three a day. And um, it's uh, 19, this is something that I don't really want to advertise, but I did 19 in person out of the 267. So it's almost 90 some percent uh, Zoom these days, remote mediation. So before, because you've got such a, a data set to pull from regarding what works and what doesn't in mediations and in person and video, but you talking about your background and the transition from private practice into doing more and more mediations, from your vantage point, what was it that really brought I mean, what was the impetus for mediations becoming such a, you know, becoming what they are now today, where they they really weren't, I mean, back in the day, right? Well, back in the day, anybody who would ever, and remember, I'm from the, just the tail end of the disco era in the 70s. So the old school presentation was merely if anyone ever suggested, they didn't call it mediation, if anyone ever contacted the other side and suggested hey, you want to talk settlement, the reaction from the old school was, aha, they must think their case is weak. Never. And there was a, a very distaste to ever try to bring it up because it would be so adversely uh, received. But over time, people like to blame me. I've been blamed for destroying trial lists. I blame the costs and the experts' expense that I can remember, Brennan, when I started, you could get a doctor's report from Dr. Norman Mindy for $100. And it wasn't very much at risk, cost-wise, expense-wise, trying cases. And you'd have 130 cases on every trial list. But I watched the experts' reports, as you know, go from what they were, $100. I watched them go to $250, $500, $750, up the ladder. And you can get into the tens of thousands of dollars for reports. And we had to find a different way because it got too expensive to get the reports. And then you have to pay your experts a second time to perform the reports in a courtroom. So the money really brought about the transition. And as far as my involvement in that, even though I was a trial attorney, I never liked the product. I know this goes against the purest trial attorneys. But I never liked the feeling, even as a defense lawyer, when I had good money on a case and I'm begging someone to take it and they wouldn't take it. And then I go get a defense verdict. I don't like the product. So uh, I found the product that I feel is superior, that has become the preference. And that's where I say, I was thinking about this and I talked about this. I think I can safely declare that ADR is a term that can be put to rest and retired because there's nothing alternative anymore about the mediation process. Trials are the alternative because uh, settlements, mediations far, far, far outweigh 
the cases that are being tried. So call it PDR, Preferred uh, Dispute Resolution. I don't know. I guess I just am uh, programmed differently, but, you know, I obviously... Well, you've tasted it. You've had great, great success trying cases. You're in the minority. And we always want to and have to put your client's interests first and foremost. And in most instances, I think, of the people that we represent, you know, resolution without trial is in their best interests. And as much as I love spending time with you and, and my client's mediation, I long for the, uh, maybe I'm from like another era. I should have been born like uh, 40 years earlier that I could have tried all my cases instead of mediating the vote. But with that as sort of a setup, and admittedly, I sort of say to people, because I think I try more cases than most, I think, lawyers out there these days. I would say. And I say it's because I'm bad at settling cases. So with that as a setup. You're not bad at it. You have good cases. <laughs> and your cases have a certain value. But we always at least consider, if not try, mediation. I don't mean to say trials are uh, to be retired. But nobody really, really wants to go to trial. They'll go if they have to, but it always seems to cost too much, take too long, and it ain't over till it's over. No one wants to be in the scenario that I was in, in the Scampone case, where it's 13 years after the first trial when we finally got the case settled. That's not in anybody's best interest. And I think I always see Pete Giglione, who was the, the architect behind that great case law and that case, who was behind all of that, wince when the amount of time is brought up. And I, I don't know if he wants to be the poster child for all mediators saying, you know, well, you know, if you don't settle, your case could go on for He deserves a the shout out for what he put into it and what he ended up getting out of it. But He does. I lived uh, through that with him. Uh, they contacted me. At like 10.30 on a Saturday night by text. Hey, do you want to take a swing at the, at the Scampone case? I thought they were drunk. I said, what took you so long? And we did it. It was the first case I did of the year in 2019. And it took another eight months after the mediation to get it done. But it's uh, we're in an era where we can be creative. We can agree to mediate a case before any filing with tolling agreements right up and right through jury deliberations. There's no one way to do it. There's no one size fits all. And that's what I grew up with. You got in line and you had the same process for every single case. And that was not going to be sustainable given the expense of uh, trials over the course of the years. So I think a lot of attorneys, when they hear the you know, somebody's proposing mediation or they're considering mediation, just assume they know what it is and how to do it. I know that's not the case. I think I surmising that a lot of attorneys do not tee things up properly to get the most out of mediation. So from your vantage point, can you talk to me about what are the keys? This is a plaintiff attorney focused podcast, but this probably applies to just about everybody. But from the plaintiff's perspective, I mean, what are the most important points that we should be checking off before a mediation to give ourselves the best chance of getting a good settlement for our client. You just used the exact words that I, when I wrote some notes down here, teeing it up. There are still some folks that don't tee it up. I call it setting the table or plowing the field. Once you're comfortable with a mediator, which takes time, I always say, use your mediator. You're paying for the service. You, you know, get the value for the cost. 
as a veteran mediator, there's lots of great mediators out there, but I'm a veteran. I already have experience with the other side. I know how they do things. I know the people. So if you don't communicate transparently with your, your mediator, how do you expect the mediator to fill in the gaps correctly or appropriately? As you know, when I get a mediation statement, and sometimes before that, I'll call plaintiff's counsel. What do you want to talk about, about the case that maybe you didn't put in your mediation statement? I often will learn more in a five-minute telephone conversation than I do reading a 30- or 40-page mediation statement or a 10-page mediation statement. If you don't trust your mediator, which a lot of people don't, don't want to tell me what their real end game is, you need to be working with someone else. Well, how do you respond to, and I've certainly had this feeling, and I think sometimes certain clients maybe have this feeling, but if I look at what everybody's role is in a mediation, I am representing my client. I have a multifaceted interest. I want to get the best outcome for them. I want to get a good outcome for my firm because, you know, on a contingency basis, we have a joint venture. I'm also personally wrestling sometimes, would I like this case to go to trial versus settle and balancing all those different issues? And then I look at the defense side of things and more and more these days, the defense lawyers have very little say. It's the insurance side of things or the risk managers calling the shots. And then there's you in the middle and you have your own job. And I guess what I'm getting to is I mean, isn't your job to settle the case at all costs? And so does that not reasonably set up the concern that, well, if I really put all my cards on the table with John, might he not sell me a bit short with that information just to get the job done? I've never thought of it, of getting the case settled at, at all costs. That's not my role. I feel that what I do is tell both sides the truth or what I see is the way it is. And what you or the other side does with it is up to them. I don't play for the next job. I know that there's some people out there that might play it in a way that they want to get the next call on the next mediation. I'm blessed that I don't have to give that even a concern. I tell both sides what I think I think, what I can uh, to try to get the case settled, but often... I'll tell one side or the other, we're wasting our time. I'm not going to sell anybody short because I feel I have to get the case settled at any cost. It's the absolute opposite of that. I I had one earlier this year where I read the mediation statements on a mid-mail and the defense said, we're never tendering. And the plaintiff said, we're never going to consider anything that's south of a tender. And I called each one and I said, do you mean it? Do you really mean it? I went back and forth a couple of times. I called him back and I said, I'm calling off the mediation. I'm not going to waste anybody's time. And at that moment, they either can blink and say, well, we want to go through with it anyway. Or they say, okay, good, we're done. So it's not getting it settled at any cost. I'm trying to get both sides to a place that they can both justify. Because let's face it, you said it. You want to do what's in the best interest of your client. You also want to do what's also maybe secondarily best interest of your business. But the other side, the insurance people, you ever work on that side of the fence? Never. 
they have one goal. And I've been saying this for years. They have one goal, and it's not to settle the case on the defense side. They want to look good in the process. They want to look good to whoever they need to look good to. They need to look good to the person who's going to send them the next file or pull all the files and give it to another firm. And I've seen it. They're not going to do anything that's going to make them look bad for the sake of settling the case. They choose not settling the case over looking bad. This is one of the best pieces of advice probably gotten, generally speaking, but I remember you were the one that uh, kind of pounded this into my head <laughs> years ago about that's how you have to think about uh, mediation from the other side's perspective is all about or largely about how can they look good with this? How can you sort of set things up so that they can walk away looking good? And I guess, can you give me, I mean, any recent examples or like a practice pointer as far as plaintiff lawyer going into mediation, how they can set things up to get both what they want and help the other side look good? Well, I'll give you the number one example that I witnessed myself in the course of a mediation with very experienced attorneys. I had a case many years ago, medical malpractice. A woman was misdiagnosed with cancer. She was dying, and they, they called me to mediate the case, and they came in with a demand that was, probably shouldn't tell you the specifics of it, but they came in with a demand that was low. Their thinking was, we need to tell the defense that we really want to get this settled for her so she can enjoy this money while she's still here. I thought that it was a mistake, but that they'd already conveyed the demand. And exactly what happened, because I was on the defense side 30 years, the defense interpreted the demand as, oh, they must not think their case is as good as we thought they did. So they must be looking at a third of what they demanded. And that wasn't the case at all. And finally, when I got into the room with the defense, I'll just throw out these numbers. They demanded 950, but their target was 850. Well. There's no way any insurance person can look good settling a case for 90% of the demand. And in that particular case, I said to the adjuster, you have 850, don't you? Yeah. You can't pay it, can you? No, not with a 950 demand. And it was a tragedy because it came down to exactly what I was just trying to explain. If you want 850, you better put the number up high enough so you're asking for that bigger piece of cake so that just optics, I'm not, I don't like that word, but I've heard it enough time, just the optics of it has to look good because it sure looks a lot better to the insurance adjuster settling a case for a third of the demand than 90% of it. That case didn't get settled. And so is the sort of point there that when you called it, you knew what they had come to potentially pay, the, the value that they had. But when that adjuster or you know claims handler tells you, but I can't pay it now, that was because why? To do so would, if he then turns back to the people at his higher ups with the round table, they're going to say, how could you ever pay that amount of money with that demand? And he would look bad. Correct. It's that black and white. There's no other explanation for it. It's merely the way it's going to look. And I didn't say this on the podcast here, but I went over 5,000 of these in October. I keep track. And not much has really changed when it comes to the negotiation back and forth since I started doing this way back when. 
there's a lot of things that have evolved, but that's not one of them. And it kind of hit me as a lightning bolt. I was speaking at a seminar where no one's paying any attention to what I'm saying. And then I was like, hey, do people want to know what's the number one goal of mediation and it's not to settle the case? I got everybody's attention. They put their newspapers down. And I related this story. Each one of you wants to look good. You want to look good to your client, your colleagues, your underlings, your staff, your family. The defense wants to look good to their their bosses or if they're in-house, their supervisors, their employers. Everybody wants to look good in the process. And you have to, if as on the plaintiff side, if you've never worked on the defense, you have to appreciate that, that while you are trying to justify a number that you put on your case, that it's fair compensation in the best interest of your client, they're trying to justify the money they recommended and may not have gotten from the lords above and the rear admirals. Because as you've indicated, I think you said this, you know, defense lawyers used to make the decision with the first level adjuster we didn't say this part, but the decision makers are so far upstream now, there's a lot of times the trial, the defense attorney doesn't know what the authority is going to be entering the mediation. More and more frequently, I have uh, defense counsel that I'm dealing with, you know, many that, you know, while it's a, an adversarial relationship, you're still professional. And sometimes you have friendships with these people on the other side. And more and more frequently, I hear opposing counsel essentially say, look, I these numbers that we're talking about and how this is unfolding has nothing to do with me. I'm just a soldier and I just get told what to do, basically. I go to trial. If we settle, we settle. And that's it. And some defense lawyers even say to me, I've told my client, I don't want to know what the authority is. Don't tell me. And that's how far things have come in my 40 some years of doing this. So let me go to something you mentioned a moment yeah. ago, which was you know, in that example case where the the good intentions, but uh, of making a quote reasonable demand backfired because it it set the bar too low and it sent the wrong message. Right. Yeah. But here's the that's and I want to talk about the message that gets sent. So typically speaking, I've always thought that whatever you demand, they're figuring, oh, Lupitin wants the midpoint of that. If I demand two million, they think, oh, he wants a million. And so the win for them is anything under a million. They can go back and say, hey, that looks great. But you, I think, said it a second ago that now, I mean, are people, are they looking at it as a third? That if I demand $2 million, they're thinking I want a third of that? Uh, it varies from attorney to attorney, defense, uh, hospital system, uh, insurance carrier. There's always a mathematical midpoint, no matter what. When you make a demand, there's a middle, there's a midpoint. And so you have to be cognizant of that. Because there are some people that think that it's close to the midpoint. There are others that are, that are thinking it's well below that. People don't like to mention the word midpoint. It's my middle name. That in bracket. My middle name initials should be MB. It varies, but I always just boil it down to the basics. As you're negotiating, as you start out and as you go through the process, you always have to ask for a bigger piece of cake. That's mediation 101. You have to be cognizant of the message you're sending. You have to be cognizant of the midpoint. And hey, the midpoint of the midpoints, if you're bracketing, because they sure are. I am. It's the first thing I see. I mean, for me, I've said this to you before, from the mediator perspective, 
there's always three things that boil down to any mediation. First one is personalities. Who's going to be the tough personality? Is it the plaintiff? Is it the plaintiff's counsel? Is it some relative? Is it a family member that, that they're not on the same page? Is it the adjuster? Is it the defense attorney? There's always some personality that uh, is standing on the brakes, depending on whatever side it's on. Then it's the cultures. Different law firms have cultures. And after a while, you know who they are, just like you know the cultures of the insurance carriers. You know, after you do this a few times, pretty much how they're going to play poker. You ever play poker with anybody? Sure. They don't change it up too much. They have a comfort level or play golf with somebody. You kind of know how the day is going to go. You know how the conversation is going to go. But for me, all of that, all roads lead to the math. I mean, I calculate the math in my head anymore in a nanosecond. Because when I see the demand and I know the lien and I figure out, assume the attorney's fees, I know where I got to get to to get a certain net. And uh, it's not anything but math every day. I've become very good at adding up the two numbers and dividing by two and getting the midpoints. And just like this morning's case, I saw where it was going. I saw where it wasn't going. I knew what, what net the plaintiff likely wanted. And uh, this morning didn't settle. The plaintiff for the case that was at hand, they weren't going to get the number they wanted. And there's no magic to getting better numbers. There's a belief that there is. Sometimes there's things that you can do to, to enhance the value of the case. But uh, I pretty much know going into it, reading the, the mediation statements and talking to the lawyers, whether I think it's going to get done or not, or get close, or at least make some progress. Going back to what you talked about sort of kicking this off with the importance of the negotiating parties trusting the mediator you know, to improve their chances, relying, using the mediator to help the process. I know when I was younger, and maybe I'd still feel this way if I worked with a mediator, I didn't know at all. But I know when I first started practicing, I was whether it was self-conscious or I was just concerned about asking whether it was you or one of your colleagues in the field, when you get a number from the defense asking you like, well, what do you think that we should counter with? I mean, how do you feel about that? Do you think the, the plaintiff lawyer should just be running the show or do you think it's wise to talk that over with the mediator and in fact, rely on the mediator's thoughts if it fits with where you're going? <laughs> Let's just say this. I'm in the other room. I'm in the other side's huddle. Why wouldn't you ask me? I get asked all the time, what do you think we should do? I, I'm choreographing more than I'm not. Even backing up before we get to your question, mediation is great when it works. And then it's a big waste of time when it doesn't. And I just, again, I won't say how recent it was because people can figure it out, but why wouldn't you give the demand to the defense as early as you can, as opposed to the day of the mediation? Why wouldn't you, as a plaintiff attorney, contact the other side, tell them what the demand is? I'm going to give you the demand before I agree to mediate, because I want to know if I give you the demand, you're going to agree to mediate. I had one recently. The plaintiff didn't make the $20 million demand, and the mediation was a day or two away, or the, day, the next day. And they send me the mediation statement. I got a mediation statement Monday night. For a Tuesday mediation, 11.14 p.m. Now, I'm a night owl. They didn't ask me. They didn't tell me it was coming late. 
I ask for a week. I hope for a day. I'm a pretty quick study. I'll read it if you send it to me an hour before. But how do you think it's going to work if you're going to lay a $20 million demand on somebody or whatever the demand is, and you haven't given the defense the time to even consider it or run it up the flagpole to the rear admirals, the decision makers? I don't understand it, but it happened again very recently. It happened again last week. So if you're going to go down the path, why wouldn't you uh, hedge the bet a little bit? Hey, I'm going to make a $4 million demand. Let me know if you still want to mediate, because I'm not going to schedule it if you're telling me we're not interested. Now, to your question, asking the mediator what to do, I think they should do it in every instance. That doesn't mean they have to do what I suggest. You know this. I'll often suggest a variety of different things, and I don't ever expect anybody to respond in that moment. But I say you could do this if you want to send this message. Because I always pass it back to you, as you know. The move is always dependent on where you want to end up. So sometimes I'll say, well, if you want to do a bracket, maybe you want to show this midpoint. Maybe you want to make a reduced demand and a bracket. We'll go here, but we'll go here if you go there. And all you're doing is fishing. And all I'm doing is fishing. So yeah, that's my long-winded answer. Use the mediator. He's in the other room. She's in the other room. I shouldn't say he. I'm writing a bunch of uh, points that I, I want to try to hit based off what you're talking about here. But yeah, tell me if you, I mean, you have to have seen the following phenomena that I have seen as the lawyer for an injured person. So I have been in situations where I like to think that my, my ideal client are the ones who say that. I'm largely going to trust you as far as what is this case worth, which would be similar to That's a nice day. A mediator. <laughs> yeah. You like the plaintiff lawyer, the plaintiff who's taking your advice and helping you orchestrate the, the resolution. However- As opposed to the client that doesn't listen to you at all. Right. And while it's like, <laughs> hey, you hired me because of my advice, because of my expertise, why aren't you relying <laughs> and leaning on it? But I have to believe you've had this happen before. I have had clients that have taken a much harder line than I wanted them to. But because they did that, the case wound up settling for more money than I had anticipated. And I have to stop and say, hey, you know what? I clearly had that wrong and they had this right. Uh, I mean, don't you get that sometimes? I don't think there's a right or a wrong to it. It's so dependent on a variety of circumstances just because they held out beyond your recommendation and got it doesn't mean they were right or you were wrong. It happens to be that the other side was able to justify that number that you thought maybe wouldn't settle for that high. It's so dependent on way too many things. And I'll talk about the non-fact factors. Sometimes they'll pay more because it's December. They want to close the file. I've been saying for 20 years since I've been doing this, every day in December is a Friday because I've lived it, I've seen it, I continue to see it, that sometimes they want to close the file. Maybe the file's too old. Maybe it's a new adjuster who doesn't want to really take the time to review the whole thing and puts more money on it to get rid of it. That has nothing to do with the facts, circumstances, the evidence, and the law. 
but everything to do with the non-fact factors that you might or I might get too much credit for the case settling when it has to do with with something that has nothing to do with anything other than timing. So you're so conscientious in my experience with you. You're always a student of this, always trying to learn and forecast and all the other things that we all try to do. But sometimes your clients don't listen to you and hold out and they get the zero. Yep. And you don't want to be right in that scenario. They are the ones that were affected by whatever it was. It's their life. It's their loss. And you do what you can to make the recommendations. But they don't always listen to you. And sometimes they listen to me. And sometimes they don't. I've had people not listen to me more often than not in their own counsel. And they go to trial and they get the zero. But sometimes we get the big verdict. You are the, one of the few exceptions. I get the point. It's interesting to hear you say that, though, because it, um, you know, anytime you feel like your advice retrospectively was not the best advice, if you're judging the outcome by the amount of money that you obtained, it just makes me second guess some of the advice that I'm giving sometimes and thinking, well, geez, maybe I'm not the end all be all as far as knowing what the right value of this case is, kind of thing. And, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean it was the wrong advice, I no, guess is the point. but we also are, are rolling the dice with which jury do we end up with. Sure. Yep. Because that's the forecast that's so subjective. We don't know who's going to be on that jury influencing the jury. You know, I tried, I tried a lot of cases where I'm trying to read the jury's face and I think they're going one way and they go the other way. I don't see too many juries anymore. You do focus groups and you get to get inside people's heads with certain facts. So you're accumulating a wealth of experience and knowledge, getting to ask people what they think well in advance of the case. And then if you try the case, I have to think it's advantageous to you to do that. But it doesn't necessarily mean that the next group of 12 are going to see it the same way. I always tend to say I get too much credit when they settle and too much blame for the mediation process when it doesn't work. I could see that. You have a unique experience because you have really rung the bell on cases where the offer was such that there was really not so much risk. Right. I don't know when you talk with your colleagues, how many have the same experiences as you. So you're doing something right. Well, but we also talk about that. I mean, there are some of those seemingly sociopathic trial attorneys out there that say no to ridiculous amounts of money only to try to get a verdict higher. And sometimes they do and they pound their chest and I'm the first one to say that pretty much all of the good verdicts I've ever gotten were because the offers were just ridiculous or non-existent. Well, that makes it easy and, for and, you. If, if yeah. it's non-existent or it's so low, you can only go up and there's not as much risk. I always think back to the attorney that I begged to take the five and a half million. Begged. And after 13 days in trial, the jury was out for an hour and gave a zero. And I was convinced it was an eight-figure verdict. Yeah. It would have been. I mean, I thought it was ever going to be an eight-figure verdict. It was this case, and it was a zero. Yeah. I had a bit of an experience that recently in a trial where we talked a lot about a, a high-low that was offered, and we really did talk a lot with the client about it. And 
ultimately declined it and then uh, oh, took I'm a aware defense of this. verdict. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, sickening and, you know, I'll never forget that for the rest of my life, learning lesson and so forth. But I don't want to get all in the blues. What I did, you brought up something a moment ago that I want to ask you about. Do you, in mediations, ever have people come in and uh, plaintiff particularly, but maybe the defense too, with focus group data? to use as a tool of persuasion to try to influence the outcome of the settlement or the mediation? I've had two of those come into play in the last week, this morning, that focus group, uh, the disclosure of focus group use was, uh, well, disclosed. It didn't move the needle. I have a question for you, if you want to get into it or not, but sure, juries have to appear and be selected and then appear again and get on the parkway and park and get in the courthouse and go through security and for $9 a day feel like prisoners. Focus group participants don't. And do you feel there's any difference or do you ever ask people about the reality of jury and the attitude they might have as compared to what I think a focus group is that people don't have that same negative <laughs> experience? Yeah, I think a lot of trial attorneys are, that's one of many concerns that um, you can have with focus groups as far as are the people that I'm speaking with really representative of the potential jury that I would try this case to? And probably not, but I think it's, uh, there's different types of focus groups, you know, and I talk a lot about this and I could turn this podcast into a, a four or five hour podcast if, if we were to go way down this rabbit hole. So there's a few different points that are important here. One, to your point, back in the older days, circa four years ago before the pandemic, most people were doing their uh, focus groups in person. Big difference. Big difference. I would say you're getting a very different crop of people because now you're getting people that are interested in driving downtown voluntarily to go get paid much more than a typical focus group or to participate in this project, okay? And there were so many other people that have no interest in doing that. There's obviously a huge swath of the population that you're never going to get to talk to. With Zoom and everybody's comfort and ability to access virtual interactions like this, I think you tap into many, many more potential type jurors that you otherwise wouldn't have with in-person focus groups because it's so easy. They can do it from the comfort of their home and so forth. But it's still not, there's no way it could ever be entirely representative of the people you're going to deal with. And then you get into the difference between small and big focus groups. So these small focus groups are, I mean, they're good for issue spotting, telling you things you hadn't thought of. If you're getting consensus in a couple different smaller focus groups, then you can start to get some comfort that whatever the big issues that are being revealed are significant and legitimate. But then there's these, and I know you, in some of your mediations, have been confronted with lawyers bringing this stuff to you, these big data, quantitative jury study projects that people are performing. And those are much more reliable and I think case determinative. I don't know if I ever told you, but the verdict that Greg and I got during the pandemic, where we hit for $10.8 million, we worked with a, one of these big data studies. I knew that. And they had predicted that that was the number. You did tell me that. I mean, it was eerie. And so I guess that's one of the distinctions. And maybe that's just a suggestion for you if you were to conveying it to defense that, you know, it depends on the type of focus group that people are talking about. If they're talking about a small group project they did with five people and those, those five people said we're going to win, you might take that with a grain of salt. If they did a giant jury study with an, a properly balanced set of facts 
and it's saying that there's an 88% win rate for the plaintiff, then I think that's something that's much more significant to the defense. But I don't know how many people are doing that and, and how moved the defense is going to be anyway. I don't see whenever anybody provides to me or the defense their jury research. I don't see it moving the needle too much. I've had it very recently, just in the last week, attorneys using the favorable verdicts for their case or against, depending on what side they're on. I don't see it moving the needle too much. What affects every case comes down to what county is it in? Yeah. Isn't that always the first question? Oh, big time. Who's the judge? What's the plaintiff like? Who are the experts? Who's the defense attorney? There's all these non-fact factors once again. But one of the things that I wanted to make sure I said today that I don't think we covered was from the plaintiff side, they get jurisdictional arguments all the time. My dear departed friend, Scotty Melhouse, who left us too prematurely, he was famous for the shrug. He knew he was in a conservative county. He didn't want to fumble, so he wouldn't say anything. He'd walk up to the jury and shrug his shoulders and sit down because the conservativeness won the day. It had nothing to do with the facts or the evidence or the law. I want to say to all the plaintiff attorneys, and this goes back to being familiar with the defense, you're going to see the same people over and over again. You're not going to see my age of people over and over again. We're, we're on the way out. The people who are the defense attorneys in your era now, they're going to progress with you. When you're old like me in your late 60s, you're going to have had 40-some years of experience with people. And how do you think it's going to go if all you've ever done is what they used to call the sharp practice and not granting a request for a continuance or an extension? Because it all, all comes around. And if you can just keep in mind that people might forget what you said or what you did, but they're never going to forget how you made them feel. And they're going to talk about you to everybody else. Just like the plaintiff attorneys talk about the mediators. You talk about the mediators on listserv and how you all talk about your common experiences. And you just keep in mind that it's a long race and relationships. I'm teaching my son this now, Jake, who's just passed the bar. Jake, everybody you meet, it's good to have a relationship with them because that's probably more important than anything, your reputation, how you treat people, than anything else. And I shake in your head, I assume you agree with that. 100%. I mean, I've certainly learned that over time. And If you can pick up the phone and call the other side, don't be lazy and just email. You get way more bang for your buck if you talk to them. Communication, courtesy, cooperation. Those are no signs of weakness. You'll enjoy this profession way more than if everything is based on mistrust and uh, sinister thoughts. I couldn't agree more. And I, yeah. I think about it as I like when somebody is nice to me and I don't forget when somebody did me a favor when they could have been a jerk about it. Like you just don't. It's such a small universe of people that you're dealing with in the profession once you do it long enough. So yeah, everybody remembers the good and the bad. And then you just look back at, I can remember uh, Tom Mattis a uh, hundred years ago going out of his way to, to pay my boss at the time, John Quinn, a compliment about me. 
And he didn't have to do that. But I literally, for the rest of my life, will never forget it. It meant the world to me. It really changed the way that I practiced and so forth. But you're right. I mean, you can look at it very selfishly too, but it's reality. You have good relationships with opposing counsel and everybody as far as you can. And they might refer you cases. They may be that little extra chirp in the ear of the financial decision maker who's going to maybe put a couple extra bucks on the case to get it resolved and so forth. So yeah, I couldn't agree more with all that. I was just involved in a settlement of a very large matter where the defense attorney who was against the plaintiff attorney developed a relationship during their case against each other. The defense attorney ends up essentially referring the case to his recent prior adversary. And now they were a team. I can remember one of my highlights of my career as I was taking the deposition of a plaintiff in a case and his plaintiff attorney, it still laughs about it 40 or 30 years later. And the guy stopped the mediation or the deposition and he looked at his lawyer and he said, is there any chance we can get Mr. Noble to come on our side and work with you and be my lawyer? It was right in the middle of the deposition. I got it on a transcript. And it wasn't a sign of weakness. It's for, even as a mediator, I sell respect to the plaintiffs. I sell respect to the defense. But I also, I give them respect. But if they're disrespectful, I'm not afraid to tell them what I think either. I feel like I'm the king of the heads up. I'm the transparent guy, the direct guy. And I tell you what I think, I tell you what I think I think. And for the younger plaintiff attorneys out there, the only way you're ever going to get a comfort level is by doing it. You can hear about it. You can read about it. You can go to seminars. You got to be on the field. You got to play and develop your own comfort level and your own way that you're going to play, play the game, the way you're going to play poker, because everybody's watching and everybody will talk about you if you uh, commit a foul. Just always keep in mind it's a long race. And you're not always going to win. You're not going to always have success. And you might uh, not get along with other attorneys. And I think the first thing that happens when a young lawyer is dealing with someone, a defense attorney who's being nasty, rotten to him, what do I do? Sometimes there's nothing you can do. But it sure gets around and it's not sustainable. I have my own no-fly list. I try to treat everybody the same, but there's some people I tell Ellie. Not scheduling them. Sorry. No fly list. Two last questions for you. Oh, we done already? No. We, Come on. I'm trying to be respectful of your time. So you want to keep talking. No, I'm enjoying I'm, I'm good for it. So I, but I have. I'm enjoying this. On mediation in particular, and you can deny this or confirm it or something in between. But the first time I can remember back that I was ever heading into a mediation with you, I think it must have been one of the attorneys at my old firm. But somebody told me going in that if you tell John a number, you better mean it because he's going to gut check you. And I feel like maybe you don't even realize you do it, but you kind of mentioned it earlier when you were talking about going back and the one said they won't tender. The other said they would only take, you know, only settle for at least a tender. And you said to them, are you serious about that? I feel like you have that. Maybe you don't even realize where you clearly check. Like you're like, are you serious or are you just putting me on? Do you mean what you say? Do you say what you mean? It helps me tremendously when someone on either side confides in me, which is not that often, where they're really trying to go. There's a mistrust innately in people 
that they're afraid if they tell me, you know, I'm going to come back with a smaller piece of cake. That's not always the case. But if I know either way, like there's one attorney in town, defense lawyer, who will put in the mediation statement where they think they can go. And it is what it is. Yeah. They're not lowballing it to try to play me. They mean what they say. They say what they mean. Most of the defense people never tell me where they're going. That's why you know when I give the speech at the mediation to the families that it's a reveal. It's a slow, layered reveal. But the same thing with the plaintiffs. If the plaintiffs say to me, look, I know we want to trust you. We demanded this. We're really trying to target this. We're really trying to net this. More often than not, when someone says that to me, I already did the numbers in my head, and I'm really close if I'm not right on the nose, because people get tired of me saying the same thing. But there's five family feud numbers as nets that I see day after day after day. Well, 50,000, 100 grand, quarter of a mil, half a mil, $1 million. Nobody plays the $90,000 pyramid. And the math is the math is the math. There's these justice sticky numbers that people are gravitating to something they want to net. Usually if someone confides in me, I already saw it coming from space, but now I have confirmation. And I try every day to push it to where it can go. When people ask me, what do you think it's worth? I tell them, uh, I don't know enough about the case to give you anything with any precision, but I know where I think it can go for settlement. And I can tell you what the math is because the other side's not telling me, but I think it can go here. Whether it's worth that or not, that's up to you, whether you can justify taking the case. How many times did someone say to me after a case settled, you know, I, I never could have put my client on the stand, but they fought me all day. Then I love the days where both sides say it. You know, they fought me all day. No, 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 settles. And then the plaintiffs say, well, I could have never put my person on the stand. And then out in the hallway, the defense attorney says, I could have never put my doctor on the stand. But they have to look good in that process. Anyway, I answered too long. No, it's great. It's just giving me a lot to think about. I mean, philosophically, how do you not to go too uh, deep into the the weeds of what is a case and what is it worth. But I mean, how do you compare, you know, what a case settles for versus what it could fetch conceivably at trial or what it ultimately does? I mean, like, what do you make of a situation where there was a significant amount of money that you thought was a good number at a mediation plaintiff for whatever reason, doesn't take it, goes to trial and gets much more. I say, good for you you roll the dice and you won. It's not a game of precision that we play. What's art worth until it's someone's willing to pay it? We go with history. We go with the history of jurisdictions. We go with past settlements. But every case rises and falls on so many variables. Sometimes you ring the bell. I don't always want to talk about how people gambled and lost. I think there's fewer occasions where they gamble and win. I'm always trying to explain to people how it works so that when they choose to go to trial, their eyes are wide open and they heard it from me. If you get what you want in the courtroom, it's going to cost you X and you'll likely get an appeal. And if you are up for the long, expensive appeal and you might have to try the case again, maybe not, at least you know what's coming. 
maybe this is a dumb analogy, but I remember when I had my uh, prostate surgery years ago and they walked me through everything, every step of it. And it took the fear out of it for me. And I translated that into what I did as a younger mediator, that if I explain how this is how mediation works, this is why I meet with everybody before it even starts. This is who I am and this is how it works. This is what's normal, not for you. This is your first day. I talk to you like it's the first day. This is what happens. If we get it done, here's how we do the paperwork. If it doesn't get it done, we can continue to talk. There's usually a point of no return if we're sending out all the checks. And just like this morning, I heard, this case is coming up for trial the end of January. We're going to be spending money soon. If they don't, if they're not interested in where we want to go, they need to know that the door will close. I just try to educate people, not that you haven't, but I spend way more time with the plaintiffs. Because I feel that if they hear it, sometimes the plaintiff attorneys will say to me, I've told my people that 20 times. You say it once and they listen to you. It's just human nature. They need to hear it. Well, and hasn't anybody that's ever been in some type of a significant relationship, be it with your spouse yeah. or with your kids? I mean, I could say something a hundred <laughs> times to my wife or my kids and they ignore it. And then somebody else says it and they're like, oh, yeah, that's such a great point. And they internalize it. I think I see Human it happen nature. all the time with clients. Yeah, it is. But I welcome it, quite frankly. And I like your analogy to essentially sort of a, an informed consent conversation that you're having. That's a good call. Informed consent. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because that's what you're doing. You're showing them, hey, here's your cases. Now there's an independent person that's coming and telling you about the pros and the cons of the case and talking about you know the suitcase with the guaranteed amount of money you can take or you can take your chances at trial and everything that comes with that. And as long as you accept those risks, then God bless you at trial, whatever comes of it. You hit big, you hit the same, you lose, you know, at least you went in there with your eyes open. And I, that's what I want with my clients. Yeah, it's an informed decision. You want your clients to be able to tell you in an informed manner that they accept the risk because you've been honest and direct with them. There can be no guarantee. Any of you people out there that haven't mediated with me, first of all, I'm not looking for more work, but if I happen to be with, I know that. If I happen to be working with you, I will read what you send me. I will call you. I may call you after I get the other side's mediation statement. I try to give the heads up. I appreciate the heads up. Someone just gave me a heads up on a case that's coming that there's going to be a family friend who's a lawyer might be trying to influence the uh, discussion. So, okay, thanks for the heads up. I know it's coming. I like to tell the defense whether we're going to have a presentation, which we don't do too much anymore, or a meet and greet, or a 50-minute PowerPoint. I give them the heads up. Hey, I talked to plaintiff's counsel. Here's what's coming. Hey, the plaintiffs want to read a statement. It's courtesy. It's uh the only way to do business is to give people the heads up so that they're prepared for it. Either way, I give the heads up when I can. As you know, I'll call you. If I'm not in a mediation, I'm here calling everybody on the next three or four that I have because I'm already calling people on Monday and for Mondays and Tuesdays cases. This morning ended. I'm, I've already talked to 
all of the lawyers on Monday and Tuesday's cases, and tomorrow's two cases, four cases that I have in the next two business days, because it's December, tis the season, they get the extra attention, and I'm asking them, is there anything you want to talk about that's not in your mediation statement? And we go from there. Now, I have a trend for you. Are you up for a trend? I love trends. Give me a good trend. I just got, and this isn't going to happen anytime soon in Western PA. It's just not going to happen. But in the East, I just got another call yesterday. It's my 14th call since March. I did a whole bunch of these through the MCARE deadline, and this is the first one I've had in a couple of months. But I get the call for the, are you willing to do the ye old phone-only mediation? I have settled every single one of these. I'm going to tell you, seven and eight figures. No plaintiffs, lawyers and me. And it's the old-fashioned from the 1990s. I'm doing it on the phone. They don't want a session. And I don't see that happening out here. Well, I've done it. I feel like you've done that with a couple of my cases before. Where I've never met your people, did we? I mean, I think... Uh, I do it after the mediation doesn't settle. I think the UPMC mold cases, you were the phone man. Oh, uh, yeah. I don't think you ever okay. met those people, you know? No, you're right. I did, I think, the first two cases, and then I did it without meeting them. Yeah, you're right. I'm just so cutting edge, John. It's, well, you, I mean, I've been ahead of the curve. You were years ahead of yourself. Philadelphia is following my trailblazing. All right, now officially, last two questions, because I... Just for a variety of reasons, I could talk yeah, to you all day, I know. but we I got to go. keep these around. And uh, No, but, and I wanted to get into arbitrations, but maybe uh, we can talk about that in a different podcast sometime. So from your vantage point, when you get to that, because I know you're either, a lot of times you're on the Zoom or you're in the room, plaintiff lawyer, their client kind of gotten to the end of the rope on the amount of money. And there's that, what should I do? In your estimation, just your advice to any plaintiff lawyer, do you feel it's better for the plaintiff lawyer to tell the plaintiff with conviction that they should take that money or like leave it more to like granting agency to them and leaving it up to them that I'm not going to tell you what to do. That's a good amount of money. There's risk associated with saying no, but if you say no, I support that. Whew. That's always risky because in this day and age, which one's risky? Handing it off to the client. Because remember, we're in the era, and you know this firsthand, where people do their own legal research online. Oh, yeah. They think they know. They've hired you. They're willing to pay you a, a contingency fee. And yet, don't confuse my law degree with your internet search. So when it's time to close a deal... If the lawyer doesn't take a hold of the reins and hold on to them, you're opening up the opportunity for it not settling. And I've seen it way too many times. I mean, I understand the approach that I don't want to pressure you. Right. Quote, quote, end quote. And I tell people all the time, you get no pressure from me, but what I'm saying to you is clearly pressure of truth facts in the American way. Yeah. But I'm not pressuring you per se, because I'm not telling you. It's a rare day when I say as the mediator, I really think you're making a mistake. I've said it a few times, but I typically won't. And sometimes I'll look at them like my 100-year-old dad would at me 
How do you think you're going to do? Because you're not thinking clearly. Or my dad would do the windshield wiper. There's just no talking to you. I would never means hardly ever in mediation land. I'm not a fan of a plaintiff doing all that work and all that effort and then letting them blow it up because you let them. Yeah, interesting. I really think we should lock this in. Okay, I like that a lot. And that's what I say to people about justification. You've heard me say it in my presentation. I boil it down to three things. The reveal, guarantee, and then the middle part, justify. Can you justify shutting this down and getting a guarantee and this lawsuit being done? Can you justify with your attorney's advice to turn it down? Because I tell them, you know, jury never knows what you've turned down. They don't know what you want. They're not allowed to know. They don't know what you've turned down. They don't know your bet. And if they say, I want justice, then I pull the club out of the bag and say, well, none of us went to justice school. We all went to law school. If you want justice, we're lawyers. Yeah. So I try to steer rarely, once in a while. I'll, and, and normally, I think, on those few occasions where I told somebody, I really think you're making a mistake, they push back even harder. Right. And they think, whose side are you on? Right. So, again, my long-winded answer. No, it's good. That's exactly what I know. Yeah. Last question, and you'll, I think I know what you're going to say, and you're still not going to convince me, but... <laughs> Try me. Why do we use brackets? Why is that an effective or believed to be effective approach to mediation? I hate them. I think they cause so many problems. And yet it's a default approach in pretty much every mediation I participate in. Well, well, first off, for anybody that's not familiar, why don't you explain what a bracket is and how it's used? A bracket typically comes into play about three or four or five or six moves into any mediation where the numbers start to shrink. So if the plaintiff started 2 million and the defense starts at 50, and then the plaintiff goes to 195 and the defense goes to 75, and they're matching each other, the numbers shrink out. So what is one to do? So a bracket is employed where someone says, I'll go here if you go there. I use brackets, I feel, successfully on a regular basis, despite some people's disdain for them. Yeah, freely admit it. What I'm trying to do with brackets as the mediator is $50,000, we're not going anywhere. And then the next move, 75, we're not going anywhere. And then the next move's 85, and then the next move's 90, and then the next move's 92.5. It's a tedious exercise to infinity, and we're not going anywhere. So what I do, I try a bracket approach where all of a sudden, instead of 50000 or $75,000, they come in with a, we'll go to 300000 if you go to seven hundred, And all of a sudden, they just showed you $500,000 when for two hours, they've been showing you 50s and 75s. They were reflectively low because they didn't like the 2 million number and they didn't like the midpoint. So I'm trying to speed the game up to no sacrifice to anyone. I'm not trying to milk any more hours at my age. I don't need them. I want to do this while we're young. But suddenly I can show a plaintiff 
look, we're really talking about something closer to 500. And here's the key to brackets that if anybody else doesn't do this, they're out of their minds. Brackets don't work if you get hung up on the outer edges. I don't pass on a bracket and I press the defense or the plaintiff, but mostly the money. I'm not doing a bracket unless you tell me that you're good with the midpoint that you are so suggesting. And if they say to me, well, no, we don't like that $500,000 midpoint, then I say, I'm not doing it. Because the other side is going to translate your, I'll go here if you go there. We'll go to 250 if you go to 750. It's all about the middle and cutting out all the crap and the tedium of minuscule moves. Now, if you go back on that scenario and say, well, we don't like the 500, we'll go to 175 if you go to 125 and you show 15 you got to mean it too. But at least you walk out of there with at least a better idea of what you're turning down. If a bracket doesn't work, at least you've seen the signal that you really got 500,000 or more and more in the game. You got skin in the game. You don't have any skin in the game if it's 50 or 75. And why would you want me as a mediator to let the mediation end where the best offer was 75 because you didn't learn anything. You want to know where are they really going. And the other side wants to know where are you really going. To me, brackets are like truckers, no offense to anybody out there, and motorcycles and like uh, three wheelers. <laughs> what do they call them? Quad. Oh, ATVs. ATVs. Quads. You either love them or you don't love them. You own them and love them, or you have a neighbor that has them and you hate them. And brackets are a love-hate thing. I, Brennan, I had one. I won't say who it was. The hospital system, without any push from me, wanted to start off at an opening offer with a bracket. They said, we're not going where they're going, but we want them to know we're serious about this. They came out right out of the gate with a multi-million dollar midpoint on their bracket. They didn't want, let's just use an example of 25 million. Sure. They don't want to put out 3 million and you go to 22 because midpoint doesn't change. So maybe they come out with a $3 million, $6 million bracket and show a four and a half. That's real money, at least with me, because I wouldn't let anybody do a bracket unless they told me they're willing to go to that midpoint. Do you think that's clear enough or do you have any other questions. I do. And to the love and hate, I love and hate brackets. I love them because in mediations in which you've used them, they have been effective on multiple occasions. I hate them, I think, because they add one more mathematical step for my caveman brain <laughs> to have to think through. <laughs> and I don't need any more stress reminders about how bad I am at math. But I um, settled a case this week. What day is today? Thursday. Thursday. I settled a case this week. I went to the brackets, there was a bracket, and then the plaintiff's counter bracket, bracketed, and then we had a midpoint here and a midpoint here, and then I start talking about the midpoint of the midpoints, and I got the case settled. I can't calculate the midpoint of the midpoint until I have two brackets, just to see if we're going somewhere. And if the plaintiffs say, look, it's gotta be way closer to my number, and the defense says, it's got to be way closer to our number. At least you've shown that much because it's way better. There's my daughter, Ellie. 
I was going to introduce her as the one who schedules for everybody. I know, Ellie. Email with her frequently. Oh, uh, there she goes. She just walked in. I just want to say one other thing, because I know this is a, a topic of, uh, I think, mythical contention. Go for it. There's a bigger mood in Allegheny County that mediations have to be in person. And I'll give a shout out to Dave White, who does 85% of his in person in his beautiful location over there. I've talked with him. I've talked with all the other mediators who do as much or with some frequency. None of us have seen bigger, better numbers in terms of settlements or the, the number of the dollar numbers. If anything, in the 19 in-persons that I've done, probably a third of them were complete waste of times where people thought being in person was going to be magical. And everyone came in and reasserted their position like it was motions court. I had one with uh, six rooms at the airport, attorneys flying in from all over the country, big, terrible explosion case, spent a lot of money renting the rooms, buying the food. We got nowhere. They insisted that it be in person. And I knew it was a waste of time when it was being set up. But we did it. The magic didn't happen. And uh, if there is, there's probably a couple of times out of the 19 that I did this year that I thought, yeah, this one needed it. This one needed me in person. I guess the point you're making, which is very uh, depressing to me, but are you telling me that the, the still to this day that there is a great hesitance in Allegheny County of doing mediations via Zoom as opposed to in person? I think I told you this. I keep track and I usually hover around 22, 23%. It's, it's weird, but it's just every year, only 22% of cases that I, that I handle are Allegheny County filings. I keep track of the counties. I could flip through just my sheet right here, but just recently it's Philadelphia and Montgomery and Columbia and Beaver and, and Lackawanna, Westmoreland and West Virginia, Blair, Center, Lancaster, Butler, Clinton. So I don't see that I'm the big Pittsburgh mediator. <laughs> you know, there's other people who do them in person and, and there's a comfort level there. But you look at the other end of the state and, uh, you know, I'm doing all the health systems in Scranton and, and uh, Wilkes-Barre and Philly and Harrisburg and Erie. It's all remote. And like I told you about the 14 that I didn't even need to have a session on, they're all MedMal. And we'll get to this the next time. I'm doing a, quite a number of MedMal ARBs. I just did another one yesterday and I did another one on, I think, Monday. No, last Friday or Thursday. Yeah, I do about 30 a year. We'll get into that sometime. Yeah, we'll do another episode and we'll talk about arbitrations because I know you got a lot to share on that. But I, this was awesome, John, as I uh, surmised it would be. Got a ton of information. I learned a lot talking with you today. So thanks for, I know you're crazy busy, but thanks for taking the time to do this with me. And I know you're booked up to the gills, but uh, for anybody out there listening that wants to book a mediation with you, where do they go? Go to the webpage, call Ellie. Or email me directly, john at noblemediation.com. I try to give preference to the cases that need it that are coming up for trial. Uh, there's a ton of cases coming up in January. So I'm doing double headers regularly. I actually worked Thanksgiving Friday 
Saturday, and Thanksgiving Sunday this year, trying to accommodate people. Sometimes I have cancellations. Try me. I will try to accommodate you. I'm doing some that we're starting at three o'clock. Whatever it takes, I still feel that I have the, <laughs> the energy and the passion, even though I say I need to slow down and want to. I enjoy too much. I work with too many great people like yourself. We have a great bar in uh, Allegheny County. And frankly, I've come to know the Philadelphia bar. So what I do, I get emails. If you call Ellie, she's going to call me anyway, because I screen everything. Then you'll find out if you're on the no-fly list. Yeah. So if you want to get uh, gut checked and have uh, John bracket you to success, uh, shoot him an email. You're not going to let that go, huh? And maybe he can fit you in in uh, in 2025. But John, thanks so much again for doing this. It was awesome. Got a ton out of it. And uh, I'll see you real soon, okay? Very good. Happy holidays to you and yours. Right back at you. Thanks for tuning in to Trial and Medical Error. We hope our discussions have equipped you with actionable insights to lift your clients above the hurdles of medical malpractice litigation. Ready to refer or collaborate on MedMal in catastrophic injury cases? Visit our attorney referral page at pamedmal.com forward slash refer. See you in the next episode.